All right, this morning we're looking at Colossians chapter 4, and I want to read verse 4 to 6 this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders and making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the authority of the Word of God. We're, we're not, and we never desire to preach men's words, but your words, because this is what we need for our soul. This is what we need, Lord, to know how to live, uh, to know how to please you, to know where we stand with you, so we can have confidence and boldness in our life to live the way uh, the way it pleases you. And, and Lord, as we do that, we know, Lord, we, we maintain our joy and the peace of God that you've given us, and then we can do the things we have to do, even though those things may bring us through trials and persecutions and trouble. Um, Lord, we can, we can do it in a way where we respond to our circumstances in a way that honors you and not allow our circumstances to control us. So thank you for the word of God. Teach us this morning, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. A spirit-filled, word-filled Christian will begin to see the transformational power of the gospel in each part of their experience as they make this, their journey through this world. And as a believer, as a believer grows in the knowledge of the Word of God and Christ and is led by the Holy Spirit transformation takes place. And that's really a great evidence that you are a believer. <clears throat> now, where, where does that transformation become visible? Because we do want to see it. These foundational truths uh, lead to a more practical thing the Spirit of God is doing in the believer. And when we become Christian, the first thing that takes place is that we are justified. We are pronounced just by God, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, in which he begins this gradual process of sanctification. Change in me and you starts to happen when we are really believers. It starts the instant we are justified, but it is not completed until we are received up into glory and in the presence of God. So the Holy Spirit is cleaning us up He's making changes in our lives, bringing into our lives conformity to the will of God. And this conformity happens from the inside out. We are changed from the inside out. Also, God wants to see your fruit. He wants to see the fruit of the Spirit and what the Spirit is doing inside of you. And you ought to see, want to see that too. So the goal of the Christian life is righteousness. We are being sanctified so that we will know what the right thing to do is. So behavior is at the center of concern in sanctification. Behavior shows what is or is not going on in the inside. So the Holy Spirit is inside of us to produce good fruit. Now, what are the major aspects the Spirit uses to change us. Well, there's several areas he uses to change us. Number one, repentance. 
He brings repentance, a change of mind, heart, and will that we would see things God's way. That's even the gospel. And then even as we grow in our Christian life, he's changing our mind. We just don't repent once. We repent, we repent all the time about what's going on in our life. And we repent of sin. And he convicts us of that sin. And conviction is about what is wrong and evil in our life. And then he convicts us of righteousness. That conviction of the knowledge of what is right and good and pleasing in God's sight. So we are, we are convicted about those things. Now, how can you do what is right and pleasing to God if you have no idea what is right and pleasing to God? Well, that's where the scriptures come in. That the Holy Spirit addresses your mind and informs your understanding with truth. The Spirit is not only the Holy Spirit, he is the spirit of truth. That's what it says in the Gospel of John, where when Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate said to him, you say you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So the Spirit bears witness about Christ and not about himself, about Christ. And of course, Romans tells us that we're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So God doesn't bypass your mind. He transforms your mind. And then Corinthians tells us, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So the Holy Spirit is making this change in us through the truth, the word of God, in your mind. And the word, of, of the word and the spirit go together. They cannot be separated. Remember, it is the spirit of God who's given us the word of God. So they can't be separated. The word, word of God transforms us. So we develop deep biblical convictions. And then when we do that, when that happens, then our conscience will not allow us to live against those biblical convictions. Once we're convinced by the word of God, no one can change your mind because you see it in scripture. And when that comes, there will be a transformation of their, your mind so that you will desire to do what is right and you will desire to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is working on our conduct in order for us to, to bear the image of Jesus and bring us out of the baby nursery and baby bottles and diapers and, of course, move us into self-control and spiritual maturity, resulting in a progressive transformation and an increasing Christ-likeness and then ultimately the goal, the glory of God in our own life. So there's a definite result that you may see when the, word of, when the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is working in your life. God wants you to see that. However, the results of the filling of the Word of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit may not be what you think or what you have heard. Because if you heard that the filling of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues or seeing visions or having dreams or having feelings of euphoria where someone loses their self-consciousness and self-control, which manifests itself in swooning and chanting and clapping and barking and laughing and stamping the feet and stuff like these, if you have heard these are the things that result from being filled with the Spirit of God, you would have missed the details of Scripture because the Scripture records that the results of being filled, word-filled and spirit-filled reveal, are revealed in your conduct what does it say in the word of God? Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourself also in your behavior. See, that's where it shows up. 
Also, you'll have the mind of Christ. You'll be obedient to the word of God. You will be prayerful. You will be thankful for everything to God. And you will separate yourself from the powers that are in the world. So you don't want to be pressed into the world's mold, but you want to be separated and a dedicated child of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also you will be very concerned about souls, where they're going. It's also revealed in your character. As Colossians has been teaching us, this will be revealed in our appearance, in not the way you physically dress, but the way you spiritually dress, how we dress as kingdom kids. Are we putting off sin, those sin-stained garments, and are, are we putting on new clothing? See, only the Christian has the capacity to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God and with the ability and will to serve and please God, loving God's word and loving God's sin will also include hating sin and desiring to pursue righteousness. Therefore, salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what has previous existed previously existed in your life. It is a matter of comprehensive transformation. It is a matter of progress in Christ-likeness. It's also revealed in your relationships. We saw that in verse number 18 onwards, our relationships, that we will see it there, a result of being word-filled and being controlled by the Holy Spirit is submitting. And that means that that's the supreme condition of the filling of the Spirit of God is submission to Christ. The knowing and the doing of the will of God. This is where we see transformation. We see it in our everyday walk. In our marriages between wives and husbands. In families between children and parents. And fathers and children. We see it in our conduct and our speech. We notice it in what we are devoted to, in how we use our time and our opportunities, in how we see and consider other people. It's also revealed in our response to the world or our response to the circumstances that come into our life once we're a believer. So this Lord's Day, this morning, we will see the transformation of the gospel in the Christian's Changes in lifestyle, which has to do with duty and performance. And what is very interesting in, uh, to notice in our text this morning is how the Christian is to continue to grow to spiritual maturity in Christ-likeness, which includes speech, how we talk, how we communicate. As the Christian grows, their language is transformed into forms of speech that will be God-centered, word-focused, other-focused, and needs-focused. That these forms of speech will edify and build the people in the body of Christ. It is how the word-filled, spirit-filled believer talks and walks in this world. Unfortunately, unless you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, our words will most likely hurt and not heal. The epistle of James informs us of that little member in our body, how evil it could be, where he says in James 3, for every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men. Men who have been created in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be. Of course, there is someone who can tame the tongue. It's the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. 
right? So there's going to be a change in the forms of our speech. The first form of transformed speech, which I'll kind of park on this morning, and possibly the highest use of the gift of speech. Well, let's take a glimpse at verse number two. And here is the first thing under the the major heading is the gospel transformation changes what we are devoted to. And notice the first form of transformed speech found in Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. Notice what it says, devote yourselves to what? Prayer, right? So that is the highest form of speech, language, because now we are actually talking to God. And we know we're talking to God because now we have entrance into the throne room of God through Jesus Christ. So we know that. In fact, in the Greek, it says there, the prayers. It includes the definite article that speech has its focus on the character and the person of God. It shows that a believer who is being transformed has a dependence on and a need to communicate with the living God who delights to hear from us, and he delights to answer our prayers. But this definite article that is really not mentioned here, but it's assumed, it stresses that it stresses something all believers are to be devoted to. This is not just for the pastors and the deacons. It's not just for those who are leading. It's for every single Christian. Devote yourself to the prayers. In other words, that means, it always means from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it also means that we are to pray together. We are to be busily engaged the whole body of believers, to be busily, busily engaged in prayer together. So we Christians are to give a constant attention to prayer. We cannot individualize what God is actually meant to be corporate, that what people are devoted to, that is what they will do. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, as a congregation, We do pray here and there. We do pray on Zoom in different places. But are we devoted to prayer, all of us? This is an all-team effort. There's nobody sitting on the bench in this one. Everybody's on the field in the game. That's what devotion means. If we're going to win in this spiritual battle, if we're going to do things for God as a body, then we must be praying. That, that is the stress of this passage here, that we're, to de- we're devoted to it. Regular and constant prayer shows where one's priorities are, where one's concerns are, where one's passions are placed. It really implores us to remember prayer is always first and should always be regular, always. Christians don't miss out on what this one thing that this is one of the God's greatest gifts he gives us in the use of our tongue is to pray to him and to pray together. And really, how do you learn how to pray? Pray, you pray with somebody who knows how to pray. Right? When the disciples came to Jesus, says, teach us how to pray. Right? So Jesus did that. And how did they, how did they learn how to pray? He didn't necessarily have a lesson on this is the... No, he prayed, and they listened to him, and then they began to pray like he did because Jesus always prayed in the will of God. And so prayer together as a church body is the one great gift that God gives us, and this is the first transformation of this speech that he's given us. Now, I want you to notice in our passage, there are two important actions connected with devoted prayer. And if you notice, it says in verse number two, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. So the first action is to stay alert in it. Christians, if we are to pray in timely effectiveness, We cannot fall asleep at the switch. 
We cannot fall asleep on our post. Now, anybody who's in the military, if you fall asleep on your post, you can get actually executed for that. But it's not a good thing to do because you are the watchman for the enemy coming. And this is how prayer is looked at in the church, that we are the watchmen, the watchmen who are awake and we are diligent in being awake, just like Luke 18 Chapter 1 reminds us that if we are without prayer, if we don't pray, if we don't stay alert, then we'll faint. For it says this, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So if you don't pray, you will faint and you'll not be able to fight. And not only that, you'll let the enemy into the camp. Now, I did give this illustration uh, in the past, but I thought it was a good one because one of my professors, Dr. Ruska, who's now with the Lord, he wrote a large, several volumes set on prayer, and he was really big about prayer. But he had one illustration about staying alert in his uh, his work, and he says that early American cowboys, cowboys who took drastic measures to keep alert and hold fast to their work while guarding cattle at night is, was exemplified by this idea that they would rub tobacco juice in their eyes to make them smarter or keep them awake, to keep their eyes open and help the riders stay at their post and not grow weary. I don't recommend you do that, uh, but it, would, it just illustrates how important it is for us to stay awake. In this area, I, I sometimes I see that the church is falling asleep here, and I don't I don't want to be a church that falls asleep in this area because this my, my friends this is frontline warfare, prayer is frontline ministry. We are, and why are we to stay alert? Because we are traveling through enemy territory, right? We're aliens in a foreign land. We're not home yet. So while we're walking through this enemy territory, we will find that we need to be praying. As the sister book of Colossians tells us in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert, again, with all perseverance and petitions for all the saints. So we're on alert praying for one another, that we would all stay strong, that we wouldn't walk away from the faith, that we wouldn't fall fall and not be able to get up. Prayer is often found in the context of spiritual warfare because it is frontline ministry, and you're needed on the front lines. Nobody's in the rear. We're all on the front lines. If we don't get this, this is not good. We we need to get it. And I I believe in in Colossians, he's Paul kind of saving this for last, as he does in Ephesians. You know, all these chapters in chapter 6 of spiritual warfare, where did that come from? Paul's saying, no, you need to be serious that when you're a Christian, it is warfare until the day you die. This is not a smooth sailing. This is not a bed of roses. This is warfare. That's why we need to pray. We need to be talking to the Lord about what's going on in our life, what we needs to be done, and what his will needs to be done while we're walking through this world as aliens. And if you don't pray, you'll be weak and faint. Oh, yes, you'll get weary in the midst of spiritual battle, but you don't have to to be weak and faint. Being weary is different. You're tired. How many many people have not been tired? Right? Life is tiring. Things that you have to deal with are tiring, but it doesn't mean you faint. It doesn't mean you give up. It doesn't mean that you're weak and you can't do anything. No, it means you're strong in the Lord. And being strong in the Lord, Christians can show that they are in touch with Jesus, the commander of the troops that Christians are to put on the whole armor of God while maintaining constant contact in prayer to God. That's who we are. 
So Christ is, is made real to us in prayer. And we are not to give up and become discouraged when answers to our prayers are delayed. Remember that God knows how and when to answer prayer. Our responsibility is to keep on praying and to trust God completely for the answer that will be, of course, according to his will and in his own time. So stay alert so that you'll be around for the answer, too, when you do pray. So the the first action in devoted prayer is keeping alert. Now look at the second action in verse number 2 of Colossians chapter 4. It says... There, it says, keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, you know, this is like the fourth time he mentions thanksgiving in just a few verses. And I'm thinking to myself when I'm studying this, is it that we don't get it? Is it that we don't get this? I mean, the first time in Colossians 3.15... He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanks, thankfulness in your heart to God. And then in verse 3, a third time, he says, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And now again, in the context of prayer, he tells us, have an attitude of thankfulness when you pray. Now, we do know that believers who are full of gratitude to God for his gracious calling, they will find it easier to extend to fellow believers the grace of of the love and the forgiveness uh, of God and be able to put aside petty issues that might inhibit the expression of peace within the community. We know that. And we know that the Lord loves to see those who serve in his church to maintain a cheerful and a thankful heart because both are the will of God. And I already mentioned it seems like a very easy command, and this is a command, it's another imperative, to follow, be thankful. You would think, well, that's that's easy. Now, why is thankfulness so unnatural to us, though? You may say, well, answering that question, well, we live on a, a planet that is has been corrupted by sin and where there's too much suffering and evil, so it's hard to be thankful all the time. Others may say, well, we, we really don't know God. We, we really don't have a relationship with him. We don't trust him. We don't really like the way he does things. So it feels normal to withhold thankfulness, especially especially when we do not find much in our life to be thankful for. I think that when that happens, that we're not looking very closely to what God is doing in our life. But Romans already answered the question on why is it unnatural? Because in Romans it says, for they knew God and they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Why is that? Because human beings think that they're wiser than God. They listen to Satan's temptations to doubt God and to turn away from him. Of course, this is really speaking of a man that is unsaved and unconverted. But I do think that it spills over into the Christian's life, too. But when someone hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and turns from their sin and repents and believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God indwells them and begins to transform them. And then they find out very quickly the Bible admonishes believers to often pray coupled with thanksgiving. It's all over the scripture. I mean, listen to Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, ceasing in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God for you. So if you want to do the will of God, if you are asking the question, what's God's will? It is God's will for you to be thankful and be devoted to prayer. That's what God's will is. Now, I can get that. Practicing it is something else. 
Philippians tells us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and let your request be made known to God. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we're to overflow with thankfulness. You know, that means there's a cup filled, and it just keeps coming out, right? It keeps coming out. That's how we ought to look before God. Our thankfulness can't be stopped. You can't put a lid on it. It just keeps coming out. And I believe the only way that that happens is when doctrine really takes root in your mind and heart, and you realize very clearly what God has done for you and that you had nothing to do with it. You couldn't add to it. You couldn't take away from it. But he did it, and so you feel so humbled and so thankful that he saved you and he put you on a path that's leading into the kingdom of God. There's not many things that could really divert your kind of, you know, get rid of your thankfulness. It just like overflows in every circumstance and relationship of life. We have, we're faced with a choice all the time. How are we going to respond to it? Are we going to move toward God in thankfulness or are we going to move away from God with ingratitude? That, that's the two choices you have. And believe me, it's not pretty to see a believer that's not thankful. It's not pretty because they're not getting something or they're so focused on their circumstance or on the people in that circumstance that it, they allow them to rob it right from them, right? And so they're down in the dumps now because of it. And being thankful doesn't mean that you don't hurt inside. It, it doesn't mean that there's not trouble in your life and everything's going fine, well, and dandy. That's not what it means. It means I'm thankful because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And no one could change that because God doesn't lie to us. He tells us the truth. You know, I came across this little booklet done by Puritan Reform, uh, read it, and um, they had like six things in, in that little book that it says, as soon as you're thankful, this is going to take place. And I thought I'd share those with you this morning uh, because it is helpful to kind of like lift up or bolster what it says in our passage. That as soon as you are thankful, the first thing is you enter into the presence of God. You are thankful. You remember that you are living your life in God's presence. He is listening to you and he's involved in your life. Secondly, as soon as you are thankful you start to see your life differently through the eyes of God. You no longer are problem-centered, but you are God-centered, just like it says in Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good to those who love God or call according to his purpose, right? And then a third thing is as soon as you are thankful, you defeat Satan's efforts to control your interpretation of reality. That was an interesting one. And what is that? Satan always, always wants us to doubt God and turn away from him. He's done that in the garden. He's had a lot of training in that, and he wants to do it to you in your life. That's what he wants to do. See, being thankful really aids us to trust the Lord and what he says about life. Just like, again, in Romans, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? See, in other words, God wants good for you. He's a good God, and he wants good for you. A fourth thing is as soon as you are thankful, you begin to link your life to God's promises you learn how to see your circumstances through the lenses of God's word, not the lens of your experience, which always dilutes, devalues, and diminishes God. And that's what's happening. Too, too much feeling-centered stuff going on in our, our life today. People are hurt too quickly. They run away from God because they, they're hurt. It, it, they didn't, it didn't go their way. A fifth thing is as soon as you are thankful, you start to see not only your situation, but yourself, your own heart through God's eyes. So, so when you have a thankful heart, you affirm that because of Jesus, 
God is up to something really good in your life. And you begin to notice that you can admit that you're weak and vulnerable and you still feel safe in God's plan for you. You can confess your sin and be confident that God forgives your sin. Why can you do that? Because the Bible actually says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All our unrighteousness. So when we're confessing the sin that we remember, God's cleaning you up from the things you stopped remembering. And then the last thing, as soon as you are thankful, your human relationships get healthier because you are, not sh- you are shaped by faith. You become more dependent on God and less controlled by your relationships with people. See, the thankfulness will prevent you from being judgmental or demanding of others or fearful of them or easily hurt. I don't have to be easily hurt when I'm thankful to God because I know I don't deserve what I already have, and you know that too, and that just keeps me humble. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given me. Thank you, Lord, for not only saving me, but all the little things you do in my life every day for my family, for my, my friends, for the, the possessions you give me, for living in this country. All these things, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Get up every day and make a long list of what to be thankful for, and you won't grumble once in that day. See, the scripture informs us that if we are going to be devoted to speak to God in prayer, we must do it coupled with the attitude of thanksgiving. And believe me, if you don't have an attitude of thanksgiving on your prayer, who's going to be the first one who knows about it? It's going to be God, right? Ingratitude in our life is incompatible with genuine gratitude. Ingratitude should not be the normal default conduct of the genuine believer who is growing in his knowledge and understanding of God's word. Giving thanks should be. As Paul again in the sister book of Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. So you see, rather than being discontented with what we have. Instead, we take pleasure in our God, in our home, in our family, in our church, in our possessions, in our occupation, in our circumstances, whether good or bad, favorable or unfavorable, we're thankful. And if you're thankful, it will rub off on someone else who's not. Thankfulness is the key factor in worship. And brethren, when we worship God intelligently, we know who we are and we know what we are to do. And this makes a satisfied, happy, and joyful people. I like, I mean, if you go to the Psalms, all you see is Psalms about thankfulness. I like the Psalm 100, verse 4 Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. A lot of times praise and thankfulness, are the word thankful, are all interrelated in the Old Testament. They kind of like go together. So if we use the words gates and courts, it represents the temple of God. And where men and women approach God's presence, the heart is engaged as one becomes excited to come into the presence of God with an attitude of thanksgiving and praise. So that's how we should every time come before God. And if we come before God in devoted prayer together and coupled with thankfulness, that adds to our worship. We're able to lift up our words to God in worship and in singing that exalts his name, and we really mean it. And people say, wow, these people really, they're into this. That's, that's how it ought to be. So it's first devotion to prayer, but back to Colossians chapter 4, 
verse 3 and 4, that's the first thing, devotion to prayer. There is also to be direction in prayer, direction in prayer. Notice what it says in verse number 3. Now, before I look at verse number 3, I must, must say that prayer must have a direction to it. Because prayer is aiming at something. If it doesn't have a direction, we'll never know if we hit the target, right? We'll never know if prayer is really answered. So what is the direction of prayer, at least in our text this morning? We'll see in verse number three, praying at the same time for us. That's Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras as well. All right, so the first thing is, what is it as well? That God will open up to us a door for the word. So Paul is saying, listen, while you're praying, Colossians, pray for me. All right? Because where was Paul? He was in prison. Right? He was in prison. And he wasn't getting out of prison. He was in prison. And so praying, he says, pray at the same time for me. So here's a prayer for something only God can do. And what is that? Open doors. An open door stood for an opportunity for speaking the gospel. The Apostle Paul is using, actually, in, uh, in the, the text here, a certain word that, that produces a mood that he wants to bring forth to the reader. And it, it is, it's the subjunctive mood. And the subjunctive mood indicates the relation of the action to reality. It means the action is possible... but it depends on certain objective factors. Now, it becomes simple in a minute. So viewing the action as possible, and what is the action? If the Colossians actually follow through on their prayer, something will take place, all right? Then God will respond to the prayer. Now, anytime we pray for open doors, you know, you hear the thing, you know, when God closes the door, he opens the window. Eh, take that off your wall. No, God, God opens doors, right? He opens doors. But an open door doesn't mean things are, uh, there's not going to be trouble or antagonist. In fact, we find in Scripture uh, where Paul says in, in Corinthians, a wide door for effective service has opened to me, but are, there are many adversaries. So anytime there's an open door, there are there's always an adversary there to prevent, prevent you from either praying for that door to be open or walking through it once it is opened. And then, of course, there are some doors that are open, but they're not God's open door. And we have to be careful about those, too. In fact, there's an example in Scripture of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says, I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when... A door was open for me. My spirit was not handling it well, and so I left there, and I went to Macedonia. And he knew, and he, then he says this. He says, be th- thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, in the triumph of Christ. So God will always lead us. There may be an open door, but it's not God's open door. It may be the open door you want. So if... Getting back to this mood, that if the Colossians do not pray, and the subjunctive mood indicates the reality of this actually taking place, open doors, depends on some external conditions that the Colossian believers actually follow through praying as Paul requested. That is what he's getting there. Now, for us, the question would be, and what if we don't? carry out prayer for God to kick open doors for speaking the gospel. What if we don't pray that? What will happen if we don't pray that? You know what will happen? Nothing will happen if we don't pray that. See, the external condition for this actually happening, is that we continually follow through in our prayers, and if we don't, it won't happen. It was John Piper who said, without persistent prayer, we have no offense in the battle against evil. Individually, as 
And as churches, we are meant to invade and plunder the strongholds of Satan. But no prayer, no power. So if we're not vigilant, we will be ensnared by temptation. Our defense and our offense is an active, should be always an active, persistent, earnest, believing, a believing prayer force that comes from the body of believers. And so that's a direction of a prayer. I want to hit this target that Paul is asking uh, the Colossians to pray so God would kick open doors for him for the gospel. We are to pray that God will kick open doors for us, for the gospel. That loved one that you are thinking about but maybe not praying for, or maybe you gave up praying for them because it's been a long time and maybe their mind slipped, your name slipped out of your mind. Or we're going to mall evangelism on this weekend and we're praying, Lord, kick open a door for us. So when we pass out a track or we have a conversation with somebody that they would actually listen and that you would allow them to receive the word of God with power and they'd be saved. Or at least we can plant the seed, water the seed, and you bring the increase. And so another direction that Paul asks for the Colossians to pray is found in verse number 3 and 4 where it says, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which... I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And I want you to note in that passage, Paul did not ask the Colossians for prayer to get him out of prison, but for an open door and clarity of speech. Prayer for the purpose of making clear that Christ himself is the mystery. And just like Paul's approach in dealing with the false teachers that we found in Colossians, he did it by a positive setting forth of the truth of Christ from the Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit, where it says in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him. That's what we do. We proclaim him. So Paul is not proclaiming something speculative speculative or uncertain or some vague feeling or experience. No, he is proclaiming, he wants to proclaim clearly the truth about Christ. And the truth about Christ from Scripture is a very clear message. And stated positively, the clarity of Scripture refers to its accessibility, that the knowledge of God contained in the Bible has been revealed in such a way that it actually can be sufficiently understood and of itself and of those who seek it also. And this is the content of the message, Jesus whom we preach, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? Which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in me, the hope of glory, that's a mystery that's now unveiled by God and by the preaching of the gospel. So in other words, Christianity is Christ. You can't get away from that. He is at the center of it all. And your attitude and relationship to this person is of significant importance. You don't need an endless list of angels to have to go through between God and man, which the Gnostics believed and which Paul was refuting in Colossians. You don't need that. No, Christ can bring you to God because he is God. I like 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. It says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. So it's all about Jesus his person, and the facts concerning him. In him is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 3 of chapter 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and in him dwells the fullness of God. 
So the Apostle Paul is saying things about Jesus that goes far beyond what people say today about Jesus, that he's a good teacher, that he's a good example, that he's a good man to follow. And usually they go no further and even conclude that Jesus is not divine. And even he's not God. He was a good prophet, but he's not divine. See, that's why we need a book like Colossians. And that's why it's here in the Bible for us, because if we didn't have it, we would all conclude that Jesus was an exceptional exceptional human being, and that is about as far as we would go, and usually go no further. But if you look at Scripture, as I already mentioned in the Word of God, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 18, for he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he himself, will come to have first place in everything. That's who Jesus is. But Satan wants to pull us away from that. And he wants us to fall away from devoted prayer and prayer filled with thankfulness and a desire to want to pray to God to kick open the doors so we can see your hand work in saving other people. And Lord, when we do speak, allow us to speak with clarity. So Paul wants clarity in unveiling God's great secret. And what secret is that? The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifest to his saints. And what is that revelation? It is the revealing of the great secret of God was the love and mercy and grace of God that meant that for, not meant just for Jews alone, but also for all mankind, that the gospel goes to everyone. So now Gentiles don't become Jews, nor do Jews become Gentiles, but both become one new person when they come to Christ in repentance and faith. So the, the question would be, all right, If the Colossians prayed this prayer, was it answered? Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 28, which we read this morning. And I want you to notice something, because I can emphatically say, yes, it was answered. And he ends, actually, the, the, the epistle, the historical book of Acts, in this way. He says in Acts 28, verse 30 and 31... It says, he, and he stayed, that's Paul, two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. And then verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, how? With all openness, unhindered. Was the prayer answered? Yes. So it's it's always good to stick around for the answer. Because sometimes that's why we... Some people conclude prayer doesn't work because you're, you're not there long enough to see the answer. Let me just close with this this morning, especially really because the main thing is that the, the highest use of speech is prayer. There was a man named Jeremiah Lanpierre. It was September 23rd, 1857, he came to New York City, and he was working in the financial district. And it, he says it, wasn't very, uh, it was, wasn't very good to be a Christian at that point. Wealthy bankers were, uh, and real, real estate speculators were uh, thanking God for their wealth. As, and, and right down the block, there was all kinds of uh, slums and poverty that was being unaddressed. And so Jeremiah uh, went there to... Uh, 
do work in being uh, and uh, somebody who's going to be in mercantile or you know like a pharmacy or, or selling all kinds of goods and that's what he went to school or went to do uh, learn there and so he finally uh, went there as a non-believer and then he heard the gospel he he became a Christian and then he got connected to a church and he started immediately doing evangelistic work with a lot of the the poor people there and so. Uh, a church found out about him. It was actually a Dutch Reformed church, and the Dutch Reformed used to preach the gospel back then. This church was a Dutch Reformed church, you know. And um, so for 168 years in our church, we've been preaching the gospel. So some prayers have been answered there, you know, that we're still doing it. But this man, what he did is that he, he said, I'm going to go, and, and so he gets hired by this church. He goes out to the community. He's handing out all these pa- pamphlets, uh, tracts, and inviting people to church. Nobody came. So he, he comes, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He prays, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the answer that he got from the Lord is, the Lord says, I want you to pray. So that's what he did. He says, how am I going to reach these businessmen that are all over here? So he starts a businessman's lunchtime prayer this is what happened from 12 to 1 in the afternoon you come uh, during your lunchtime and you can stay 10 minutes you can stay for the whole hour you can stay a half hour whatever you, want. you come and pray we're going to have some a little bit of a singing we're going to have uh, some exhortation uh, if anybody speaks any more than 5 minutes a, a bell's going to ring so we don't want to waste anybody's time we want we're coming here to prayer so the first Meeting night, or first meeting afternoon, uh, what happens? The first day, Jeremiah, half hour goes by, it's just him. Another half hour goes by, one person comes. At the end of that first day, six people actually did show up. The following week, 20 people showed up. The fourth week, 100 people showed up. Then October 18th, a financial panic sees the city, New York City, this was in, collapsing the economy into a deep recession. So all these businessmen are, are freaking out. So what did they do? They go to the prayer meeting, and um, in six months, 10,000 businessmen came to pray. They had to open up police departments and other churches and firehouses, all these people wanted to come and pray. They had to start a morning prayer because some guys couldn't come in the afternoon. They used to want to pray. Two years later, it's reported that it spread all across America, reporting that one million converts were added to the church in America during that time. And it started from one little guy asking God, what do you want me to do? And he started praying to God. And God, some of these men came, they weren't converted, but they heard everything was going on. They started asking, how can I be converted? And they came, they started coming to Christ. And God saved a lot of people through that. So I thought that story was very uh, applicable to this point that we ought to be devoted to prayer. And if we're not, we don't know what's going to happen. But if we are, we look for what's going to happen. And God answers prayer. Does he not answer prayer? Matter of fact, you're sitting here this morning because someone prayed for you that you'd be saved. You're sitting here today because someone prayed for you that you're saved. And if you're here and you're not saved, someone's praying that you will be saved. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this morning... Lord, thank you for the word of God. It so impresses upon our heart and our soul what is really needful in our life. Lord, sometimes we're so concerned about the simplest, smallest things. And yet, Lord, the thing that is most important we neglect. But I pray, Lord, that Today we would stop neglecting those things and we would pray. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a people that is devoted to prayer. And I pray in our devotion to prayer, Lord, 
we would be active in that, in that, Lord Jesus. We would be praying and we would be filled with thankfulness as we are devoted to prayer. And we would be alert as soldiers. And that, Lord, as we do that, we would be shooting at a target with direct prayers to the throne room of God. And Lord, I pray as we do that, we will learn how to pray more in your will and for your purpose and for the advancement of the church and the kingdom of God that we would have open doors for the gospel and that you would enable us to speak clearly those truths and that, Lord, we would see the results. I ask you for that today. In our family, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.